Welcome to BDO's Healthcare Rx podcast, hosted by the BDO Center for Healthcare Excellence and Innovation. Learn more about the trends disrupting healthcare and how companies can adapt and evolve in an ever-changing business landscape. My name is Patrick Pilch. I am Managing Director and a leader in BDO Center for Healthcare Excellence and Innovation. I'm very honored to have Dr. Karen DeSalvo here to help kick off our session with a fireside chat on the future of digital health. Most of you in the room likely know Karen. Um, she was a former National Coordinator for Health Information Technology, where she led the charge to build an interoperable health IT system to bring consumers better access to care, no matter their, their background. Before working for the Obama administration, Karen served in, uh, in the private sector at faculty at the Tulane School of Medicine. She became the New Orleans is that the right way to speak? New Orleans, right? New Orleans? New Orleans. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there's certain, there's certain uh, geographic uh, intricacies there. Um, New Orleans uh, Health Commissioner in 2011, where she restored health care to areas of the city so devastated by Hurricane Katrina. She also led effort, efforts after Katrina to create an innovative neighborhood-based primary care and mental health services for vulnerable populations and help build a sophisticated health IT infrastructure. How can health IT and, and technology support population health? Um, thank you, Patrick. Th thanks for uh, the chance to be here and, and talk about all this. And to your question about New Orleans, by the way, it depends on how yatty you are. <laughs> so in New Orleans, we have something we call yats, and, okay. which is most of my family. And um, that, that, that affects uh, how strongly you say the words, but New Orleans is perfectly fine. And it is a population that um, I think exemplifies some of the things that uh, um, we would worry most about for, for people in this country. It's mm -hmm. historically been very poor. Mm -hmm. uh, it's historically um, had access to care largely through emergency departments and um, d through systems that were funded by disproportionate share money, so sort of block grants to hospital systems and, and didn't build an infrastructure in that community of, of, uh, of outpatient services because there wasn't a financing mechanism and because it wasn't culturally sort of expected. Um, and, and so not only for healthcare reasons, but for social reasons, poverty, education, et cetera, it was a, a pretty unhealthy community. And I think it was for us, um, uh, particularly in the era of digitization and thinking about the opportunity to leverage data that was more facile and could give us a picture of the community and look for gaps in care, um, for opportunities at the neighborhood level to make intervention, uh, sort of a, an early study for me and others about uh, what, what it could look like if you were able to leverage data to improve health. And this is um, obviously in the last decade become, become a buzz uh, for people. Uh, for mm -hmm. most of the time, people think about population health as um, a way to reduce cost or to think about um, opportunities for, for management of individuals or perhaps some targeted populations. Um, I think increasingly we're also thinking about population health as a way to not just record what's happening and try to do some intervention, but predict. Mm -hmm. So the, the world of uh, using data and digital in inputs to uh, inform population health has really gone from building databases to thinking about uh, a more, I'll call it a retail model, sort of right. understanding at a more granular level 
who's living in the community, what they're thinking about, um, where, where there are opportunities to intervene, again, not only in the community level, but where appropriate for individuals. Mm -hmm. I'll just um, say sort of one other thing, which is, um, though it can feel daunting to think about an entire large community, I, I believe what we've also learned from the, the world of population health that when you pull data together, um, when you aggregate it in that way, uh, it, it is really easy not only to see gaps, but to find that 5% that accounts for 50% of the cost. And that feels more manageable for a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, this is, a, this is a subset of patients that we can really do, some, we can do something about, reach out to. Um, and then, and again, as we're learning more about how to predict who's going to fall into that 5% bucket in the next year or two or three, that's giving us a chance to get even further ahead uh, of the curve. So. From a healthcare standpoint, limitless possibilities. I know we're going to talk a little bit about public health, but I think that, that that's also where it's creeping, is mm -hmm. sort of what are the other ways that we should be thinking about changing context so that people don't end up in that 5% in the first place. So that's, that's very helpful. But so, then the, so Katrina was obviously um, a major um, mm. weather event, if you will. Um, but there's been other major, major weather. But, but since then, there have been significantly other additional major weather right. events around the world. Right. Now, looking at that in terms of digital health and digital technology and data playing into emergency preparedness, how do you see that role? You know, the, the thing about um, disasters is that it's a time when people tend to, to leave their agendas at the door and come work together collaboratively. Um, we, we, we see that every time there's some horrible disaster, and I bet that's happening right now in Santa Barbara and the yeah. area around there where people are just uh, thinking about the, helping their community. And um, one of the related issues there is that it's a time when people uh, let go of the hoarding of data. And they're, they're more willing to share, um, not only from a, an interoperability data movement standpoint, but even a data liquidity standpoint to think about use cases, usefulness of uh, health information to improve the health of populations. When, when Katrina happened, it was, so it was 2005, mm -hmm. and um, so you all probably, I, I, don't know what the rest of, I don't know what the rest of the world was like, but I'll tell you, in, in New Orleans, we were using flip phones. We really didn't even have Blackberries in, wow. in Louisiana at the time. We we're, were pretty rudimentary. I had never texted, uh, which is almost embarrassing to say to this crowd, but it's a fact. And uh, I, so I, I, I had to learn to use some technology, uh, including something simple like texting. And that, that was the state of our, of our mm. IT infrastructure in 2005 in New Orleans. And I will submit to you that though there were places like California or New York or, or DC that might have been more advanced, most of the country was, was in that state. Mm -hmm. And frankly, a lot of the country is still, is still there. So we should remember that right. um, context. <clears throat> However, from a just a purely patient-focused standpoint, because of that lack of IT infrastructure, what happened was that doctors like me didn't know where our patients had gone, particularly those patients who were on blood thinners or HIV meds or cancer regimens, people who couldn't miss a dose, who couldn't miss a treatment. And we didn't have, from a population health standpoint, a way to mine our data, because we were not using EHRs, or one that was mineable in, in, in mm -hmm. our case, to say, okay, well, here's the 200 people that I got to find tomorrow because if they miss a dose, and I need to figure out where they are. Right. So we had this. We in Louisiana, I think, set a course forward for the country about how important it was to have a digitization of the care experience, not just for every day, but for disaster, because it just we felt it acutely, and it marshaled all of us. It created this movement mm -hmm. in our community that we needed to 
digitize the care infrastructure. We would not go back to paper. It was all bricks and flooded and ruined anyway. So let's just move ahead and let's find a way to, to um, create a, a system where the data can be pulled together mm -hmm. and, and be useful to help people in times of disaster. And fast forward to even the, the last summer season of hurricane where we saw assault after assault after right. assault. Even though, that there, even though there were some challenges um, that, and, and uh, we still have work to do, by and large, the health IT infrastructure performed extraordinarily well. Mm -hmm. And we kind of took it for granted as a country that, that if you were in a shelter and someone needed to access your meds, there was a way that the health information exchanges set up shop in the shelter alongside FEMA and others yeah. to help people get in their portals and get their information so that those, those clinical teams could, could help people who had evacuated. It was true if you had moved to another, another part of the country, you had a way to get, even just as an individual through your patient mm -hmm. portal, uh, your health information. And, and that, that continuation of care part is pretty seamless. We, we've done other things too, and I'll just, um, because it's worthy to, to not just talk about the, the, there's different types of data. And right. I, I think you and I have talked about this empower tool before. Because one of the other things that we've learned to do with data in this country is not just wait for the health information from a clinical record, but we're using claims more intelligently. And uh, claims is a place where we've been able to use um, data to help people in times of disaster. So mm -hmm. um, when I was health commissioner, I worked with HHS to develop a tool called Empower, which is now at scale across the country, that um, at the time of an event or just immediately preceding one, importantly, Medicare data is mined for a geography to identify people on Medicare who are at high risk in the event of power outage, mm. water disturbance. So they're, uh, they, they have, based upon their claims, they're using durable medical equipment, they're oxygen dependent, and it allows the local first responders, public health, to know by address and name the people in their community who need to help, help evacuating who, 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 or who need to be notified that there is a fire coming and right. may not know that because they, they are deaf, as an example. So mm -hmm. I think that, that they're... Uh, we're, we're using data in this country now a lot more um, intelligently to help in disaster, but, but I think also in every day. And it's, it's, it's a great thing. We're not done. Right. But, but I think as the next iteration of data management uh, and intelligence comes along, I hope people remember that there are use cases beyond just clinical delivery. Yeah. And that's very helpful. And I could go on deeper into that in terms of where you're going because it, ma it makes a lot of sense. And, and um, I can tell you, it, you know, having been in New York during Sandy, mm -hmm. I, we didn't really, you couldn't get po you know, power, so if no power, right. you can't find people. Um, so not to, I mean. Right, and, you're, and so you're, the way, the way um, people who have done emergency work will know this, so you're, um, as health minister, I'm standing in the emergency operations center. It's our fifth day or whatever of, of power outage. This is the same story that would be in Sandy, and the power company has been through their list of prioritized um, sites to restore power and, and then turns to you and says, so where should we go next? And you're looking at your community and you know, like for a variety of reasons, we knew that there were seniors in high rises. This is exactly yeah. the same story yeah. in Sandy that, that were without power. And in our case, it was you know, hot. It was well, hot it was there. Degrees, yeah. um, we, and and I, I was guessing. And I was guessing based upon getting the cops to drive me around the streets and knocking on doors oh at high rises and asking managers and people that's, outside, that's do you know of anybody who lives here who's on oxygen? Can we help them? I mean, the list we had was incomplete. That, yeah. that, that very personal experience yeah. drove me to want to build this Empower tool. Right. And, it's, and uh, that's the kind of thing that um, if you build those bridges mm -hmm. in disaster, so a pipeline so that claims data is useful for public health purposes, 
then we can begin to imagine a world where we can also use that data, de-identified it could be, yeah. for other good public health purposes, population health management, yeah. planning. And that's why I get excited, not just because of what we can do to help people in the moment, but also mm -hmm. because it'll help them win the resiliency component. Right. Yeah. So let's turn to government's role. Obviously, recently out of the government, right? So now you're um, it's a year. back to the It's a year. It's still not quite recent. a year, but it's a year. <laughs> I guess a year and a couple of weeks, and two next week. Um, so what do you think government's role, do you think government has a role in fostering and supporting innovation, and what would that look like? I mean, you were at the, at the, at the forefront under the Obama administration. You know, um, you, you mentioned the clinics um, work that we did in New Orleans after Katrina. So, I, the, you know, we had this very hospital-based, ER-based system with a lot of uninsured folks who were really mm -hmm. unhealthy, and we flipped the system and we went to, and we built a network of community clinics in neighborhoods that um, were first financed with philanthropy and then um, we worked with Secretary Levitt and his team in Congress to get a grant to support them as a sort of recapitated model. And um, that grant, that, that three-year effort was ending and we needed to figure out a new way to fund the care for these uninsured uh, individuals. It was about 200,000 people, 70% of whom were uninsured. And they were using the clinics. And um, there were patient-centered medical homes, and CQA mm -hmm. recognized. It, was, it, was, it, it is today still a great system, and it's now very financially stable. But we were in this, this zone, and I was, um, I, I, it was one of the things that drove me to be health commissioner because the, the new mayor uh, said that he thought it was an important part of our infrastructure and wanted to help find a way to continue the financing, which really meant an 11-15 waiver mm -hmm. from the Fed, so to go to Medicaid. So we had to find the match. It's a longer other story. Got the, the state never would give up, give money for our clinics. We gave, found the match, um, drew down the dollars. But in the process of the 1115, um, our our state government and the the federal government at the time, this was early Obama administration, uh, pushed us into a fee for service model. We had been in this global cap model. Mm -hmm. and it was the best experience I've had practicing medicine, running clinics, because we were focused on care. And we were, we were end quality, not on how many people came to the door. And boy, I'm telling you, within a couple of months, yeah, I, I was having to let go of community health workers and tell the legal aid clinic, I'm not so sure. And um, I, I, it drove me to want to know more about the policy side, because right. I didn't understand why, if we knew something worked on the front lines, and we had had right. mystery shopping, and we'd been audited. I mean, right. there was just, why couldn't the, the, the system, the mm -hmm. government, right. um, help with that? And uh, along the way, I ended up federally, um, because I really felt like government could have a role either in, in driving innovation or getting out of the way. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that where I've landed now, a bit, have, I've had an additional year to think about it, is that um, there's... Uh, go government, uh, particularly um, when it comes to health care, wants to do things, but I think we get in the way. And um, so they're, you know, being over-dictating over, over or prescribing um, kind of the care model or how, how, how people should be engaged in supporting uh, individuals. Care is very local, and it sounds mm. so cliche, but I know this personally, and we tried very hard to step back from it, but it's very, it's difficult to not get your hands in it. So I'm, I'm very interested to see how this administration continues some of their deregulatory work. I think on the other hand, government, in my opinion, has a really strong responsibility to 
um, level out the uneven, unevenness in this country and have a policy goal of um, not leaving anyone behind. So it's very easy for innovation to support people who have means and mm -hmm. access and live in communities where they have the resources. But if you live in rural Georgia, I think you should still have the same expectation in this country that if you get run over by your tractor that you're going to have access to quality care and a right. blood product that's going to be safe and, and be able to take care of you and that your digital record's going to be able to transfer with you when you go down to, to Emory to, get your, to, mm -hmm. to have your case done. So to me, government has a floor. Right. You have to set a floor, stay out of the way of innovation, um, and, and there are some guardrails around consumer protection that, that you still work out. The difficulty in all that nice talk is when you're doing your regulatory process, it's years until it hits the street. Mm -hmm. So when I arrived at HHS in January 2014, the team at, at the Office of National Coordinator, you know, like, we must have an emergency meeting in the morning about meaningful use stage three. I'm like, we haven't even put out stage two. What, what the heck is going on? And, and they said, oh, no, we must start you know, <coughs> talking about it. And it's, as you know, turned into MIPS and the world, yeah. but it took years for that even to come out. And in that intervening time, um, we learned a lot about value-based payment. We learned a lot about what digital can and cannot do. We mm -hmm. learned a lot about um, the fact that meaningful use is not the, the end, not the center of the universe, nor are electronic health records. We changed the federal health IT strategic plan. So, and all the time in the background when you're writing a rule mm -hmm. with one set of expectations that's not going to hit the street for years, um, the world is changing all around right. you. And you're getting in new data. So this is, a, this is um, a difficult thing for government. It's one of the reasons we use tools like sub-regulatory methods for our standards recommendations mm -hmm. and for trust frameworks, because I didn't want to have to go, have to call. And by the way, when you rule make, you can't bring in stakeholders, right? Because you're you go quiet. Yeah. So um, being able to do sub-regulatory <laughs> efforts allows you to to do this with the private sector and iterate iterate going forward. So it's a it's a really fine balance. Yeah. And I just this is out of out of the scope of the conversation, but I I just want to say that I think that it seems to me Scott Gottlieb and his team at the FDA are doing a really good job of finessing that dial of we need to be protecting people and using our, our, our regulatory levers, but we also need to not get in the way of, of innovation. So think about their work in nutrition or, or tobacco or, mm -hmm. or, or, or smoking as a way that they're trying to protect the public's health, but also their pre-cert for products um, yeah. and, and how they're trying to get out of the way of innovation. Yeah. Um, can we show, Nadia, can we show the survey, you think? We'll just show the survey. We did a survey with um, New England Journal of Medicine, and then we're going to go into some Q&A from the audience here. Um, and we asked providers about the impact on the healthcare industry of some major new entrants. And um, they expect the CVS, Aetna deal, and the entrance of Amazon to have the most impact in the coming years. So what do you think? I mean, you're, you've, not to get like, nail you to like a specific company, yeah. but like the thought well, of like gonna, new You're going to spend the morning talking about it, and I bet you I'm going to say the, the same thing that everybody else uh, thinks, because this is the, uh, at least I hope I, I, hope I do. I, be, and here's the thing. Um, people, for, for the second year in a row in this country, people are dying, or living less of a life expectancy than in years prior. This is inconscionable mm -hmm. in America, that we are, losing life years. And when you look at the, the, the graph compared to our peers, it is diverging. It's not like a little tiny blip from opioids. This is, this is an ongoing challenge that we're finally beginning to see in the data and the numbers. And, and costs continue to rise, though the curve has been bent. 
So if, if, if nothing else, the burning platform for me is that um, we are not well as mm -hmm. a country, which right. affects our ability to be productive yes. and happy and competitive. So we got to wake up. Mm -hmm. And if you were to think in the way of the national health care system and the way that we thought about Louisiana, we re-engineered Louisiana, uh, particularly New Orleans, because everything that we had put into place was designed to create the outcomes that we were getting, which mm -hmm. was poor health and a high cost. So we went upstream, we built outpatient clinics, the numbers are all moving in the right direction for that community. We've got to do something similar in the U.S., but it's more than just primary care and, and move into community. I think this is a, a, calling, a calling the question of all of our assumptions about the primacy of medicine in taking care of the health of this country. There's a recognition that there are other inputs to health, that if you go to bed hungry or you have um, unsafe housing or you have mold or uh, insect parts in your house, you are more likely to end up in the emergency room and accrue to somebody's bottom line. If you just want to make it that simple, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you're also going to keep a kid out of school and you're going to keep people from being able to go to work or go to church or take care of their family. So all of this together, it's not just about, medicine's not going to solve this alone. Clinical excellence alone is not going to keep people healthier and living longer or bend these cost curves. And that's why these new entrants are so interesting because they're not walking into, into this um, with the same assumptions that we've had in the House of Medicine or mm -hmm. even in public health for so long. They're understanding um, that there are other inputs to health, that there are ways to help people make the right choice when, the, when it is available to them. Mm -hmm. They uh, have a retail approach to being able to customize decision-making and the availability of services to meet people where they are. Mm -hmm. And that is just not something that medicine is really set up to do. And, and frankly, even public health is important as I think that public health responsibility is. So there are um, consumer issues for me in here that, I, that are to watch. So they involve things like um, equity, sorry to use that word, but uh, I do believe that, uh, we, uh, that, that I, I don't wanna leave communities behind because they don't have means. I don't want uh, people because they don't have internet access to not be uh, not to be able to avail themselves of some of these tools. On the other hand, if you think about um, say an Amazon stepping into the food business and taking on the work of like a Meals on Wheels, if you think about rural America and the opportunity there, if we can get over some of the internet pieces, a drone can drop off food at somebody's house in rural America a little probably more easily than a Meals on Wheels program. Now they're not going to fix the, the lights or the attic stairs or whatever Meals on Wheels can do, but there are some social services supports mm -hmm. is where I'm trying to go with this. And I, 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 I'm, I think even more than the medical component, Patrick, the, the idea that we could professionalize the social services industry that's very cottage still, right. very not, it's not digitized and it's having a really uh, impossible time meeting the medical system and, and it, we need to strengthen it, otherwise we're not gonna do something about uh, things like life expectancy, quality of life, well-being, and, and cost. Okay, and so, and I think all these companies uh, have mm -hmm. some really particular opportunity to, okay. to think about the world in that lens. I think we're going to be running out of time. Can you take one question, Nadia? Bobby. So I've been wondering over the last year or so as the interoperability standard, for example, coming out now recently, it seems to me, and this chart appears to, to support it, that a lot of, well, the service, healthcare services industry is very broken up and not consolidated right across the country. I think a lot of the ideas that are going to come um, on the tech side are actually going to come out of Silicon Valley, like the Apple, Google, Microsoft, a lot of these others. What do you think about that? Do you think that, that we're going to see Silicon Valley become a driver in healthcare services here over the next few years? 
I was, I, I, okay, I'm gonna say what I, what I wanna say immediately, which is I hope so. And, and the reason I hope so is for some of the reasons I've articulated, but I, I think also because we really need some serious uh, um, innovation to happen and, and, and we need to get rid of some of these assumptions that, that we've been holding on to. When I was the national coordinator, uh, I, the, the thrust of our work was to free data. It was, um, when, I, when I got there, there, the strategic approach to interoperability was, was a, um, a direct approach. It was about point-to-point -point connections uh, from one healthcare part of the healthcare system to another, which is al an almost impossible task to accomplish. And um, mm -hmm. our work was to require um, open source APIs and that would then free data for many use cases. We've mentioned several of them today, public health disaster, but also for um, the needs of, for example, artificial intelligence and machine learning to, to better customize care and do better prediction uh, and to create consumer-mediated exchange and longitudinal health records. There's a whole host of, of opportunities then that, that, un, that unveil themselves or federated data. It doesn't have to all be ag aggregated. There's some problems in the API piece and, and, and even in our rulemaking. We, mm -hmm. we couldn't call fire. We couldn't call things because we had to put a rule out before some of those standards were mature. Yeah. But we tried to, to squishy around it. Anyway, the point is um, some of also what we heard a lot from Silicon Valley, I'll just use that as a generic term for innovators and people who are great with data is we don't care if the data is dirty. Don't overstandardize it. We'll deal with it. We'll impute. We'll figure it out. Um, and we're not going to give somebody cancer based on it. Maybe um, some people are trying that um, <laughs> cancer therapy, I should say. Um, but but um, that that I think I think we were uh, so it's a culture shift for medicine, and and boy they fought hard. But then once they got on board, especially the the electronic health record companies, they realized that that could be a new business opportunity potentially for them. So um, the, but the data is still not free, yeah. and we're not going to get to this world um, until people start demanding that their data is available and useful in that way. And it really, I hate to say this, but it's about a movement. Consumers are gonna have to get a lot more savvy and you have to start asking for that and demanding these products because um, the system doesn't have a lot of pull yet, the health system, they're, they're, they still have, a, uh, in spite of great, great work we did in, from a regulatory standpoint, in spite of Congress's support in 21st century cures about data blocking, mm -hmm. the demand yet um, hasn't quite come. So I'm, I'm excited about it. The policy framework is there. Um, and I think the technology is available, but the culture still needs to, to evolve. Karen, thank you very much you. for a very candid conversation with us. In the next episode of BDO Healthcare Rx, we'll hear about how mergers and innovative technologies are changing and improving the healthcare industry. First, okay. I think, you know, 10, 20 years from now, we look back and say, how did we possibly diagnose patients? How did we possibly prescribe drugs? And we never looked at their molecular makeup. We never knew their genome, and this has such a profound impact on our health. It has a profound impact. It has a much more accurate diagnosis, and it has a profound impact on our, the efficacy of drugs. Thank you for joining us for this episode of BDO's Healthcare Rx podcast. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you'll visit iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. You can also subscribe to the BDO Knows Healthcare blog by visiting bdo.com slash blogs slash healthcare.